This week on Basic Black. The history of black people in this country is unique and is still felt in all kinds of ways. We open up with a follow-up look at the events in Baltimore with a conversation about black leadership and variations on the blue wall of silence. Later in the show, as tensions in Baltimore increased, it was the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which included a few jokes on the state of race relations that took center stage in many media outlets. And just after the state of emergency in Baltimore was lifted, the comedy duo Key and Peel premiered a sketch called Negro Town. We ask, when is the right time for satire? That's our conversation coming up. Our panel tonight, Philip Martin, senior reporter, WGBH News. Benil Joseph, professor of history, Tufts University. Latoya Edwards, anchor, New England Cable News. Emmett Price, associate professor of music at Northeastern University and author of The Black Church and Hip Hop Culture. And Kim McLaren, associate professor of writing, literature and publishing, Emerson College. To join the conversation, please visit our website at basicblack.org. The Department of Justice is opening an investigation into whether the Baltimore Police Department has engaged in a pattern or practice of violations of the Constitution or federal law. Loretta Lynch's announcement, the latest headline in the saga that is Baltimore right now. And before we begin, we want to acknowledge that Professor Peniel Joseph will be joining our conversation in just moments. He's not here right now, but he's on his way and he has lots to say about this hot topic. But we want to open up to our panelists. We heard Loretta Lynch, the brand new U.S. Attorney General, talk about launching a federal investigation into the police department in Baltimore. Were you surprised by this? I wasn't surprised. Uh, I think some may be surprised because of, of the expectations about Loretta Lynch. I mean, that's her personal expectations because uh, she was seen as someone far more cautious than um, uh, than her predecessor, uh, Eric Holder. But uh, I think she had a little choice in this matter because of the enormity of this issue. She's looking at constitutional, uh, possible constitutional violations, and she's looking at violations of federal law. And that's exactly what the DOJ should be doing. Uh, and and this again, this this uh, incident, the uh, the shooting of Freddie uh, Freddie Gray, Gray, the killing of Freddie Gray, rather, uh, not the shooting. Uh, he died, of course, in the van as he was being transported from uh, from the projects that he was in to uh, to the police station, and he died en route. Uh, I think the question here really is not uh, is were constitutional rights violated, was federal law violated, and I think the DOJ had a little choice but to continue the tradition that Eric Holder began by looking at this issue of police police of uh, uh, uh alleged police violence across right. across the country. But the but the investigation is about not just about Freddie Gray, who I think actually died in the hospital yes. later. That's right, he died in the, the hospital. That's but about uh -huh. the patterns and practices yes. of the Baltimore Police Department. And yes. she, in fact, did have no little choice, especially after the mayor mm -hmm. uh, asked for the investigation, yes. which, you know, kind of changed her tune. She had, the mayor had previously not wanted the official DOJ, or maybe not, not wanted, but had not called. I mean, people have been calling for, yeah. for, and, years. for, years, right, for years. And That's the city right. council has been calling for months. So this way precedes the Freddie Gray right. tragedy. Mm -hmm. uh, what a what a wonderful first week on the job, right? I yeah. mean, you, you, you end up you, you in, in Baltimore. So, yeah. You yeah. know, um, she she uh, attorney Mosby 
is the one who basically pulled the Trump card because once she filed the charges, the, the indictment, the state prosecutor, the prosecutor indicted uh -huh. the six officers, then it gave the DOJ and, and Attorney General uh, Loretta Lynch the, the kind of sense that this is going to bubble up much higher than people think. And she had to. She had to. Well, I, I, I get why the argument is made for her to have to do this, and of course there's evidence to back it up, but there is a completely different side. Not everybody believes, there are people who looked at Baltimore and saw this is a singular incident, mm -hmm. saw it as people getting out of control, reacting to someone's death who, um, you know, the police are saying they did have a right to stop him. There's a, there's a disagreement over whether, mm -hmm. um, you know, a switchblade or a pocket knife, legal or not legal. Um, and so, Loretta Lynch, the new U.S. Attorney General, she's a black woman. She she succeeds Eric Holder, who ha who left under a shadow of you know what people said he is too he was too not, black. Not people, well, Republicans. Republicans. Let's be clear. No, right? critics. I'll say like critics. critics. Republican critics. Well, Republican critics felt that Eric Holder basically was too hard on police officers. Let's face it. Oh. But but what the Justice Department did under Eric Holder, and and prior to and and, and within the department under within the the um, the, the Civil Rights uh, Division, is essentially investigate police violence around the country. Now a lot of this had did not take place during the Bush administration. But what I'm this is not, mm -hmm. it's, my point was that it was not, it, not everybody believes in this cause. And there is a amount of the, the nation who says, why is it two, two U.S. Attorney Generals back in a row and they have to, it's a black issue. Well, it's not a, a it's not, but it's not a black issue. It's a policing issue. And it's a mm -hmm. systemic police issue. And that's, and that's the, the concern here. Uh, the, the president himself, President Obama himself, talked about this. It's, it's not just about Baltimore. This is symbolic of, uh, and mm -hmm. actual uh, representative, representative of what's happening across the country. Mm -hmm. Where you have incidents where police, and it, it's, in the community, they are policing clash, and they clash largely not just because of misunderstandings, but a pattern of policing that exists in many of these communities, right. from Baltimore to Detroit uh, to Oakland, uh, a, a pattern of policing that has to be looked at beyond uh, simple uh, incidents. These, right. It's not episodic. No. Uh, there's a question of whether this is systemic, and, and many people uh, believe so it is systemic. Not, so and, race is and, not and, a factor. Well, no, of course race is a factor. Race, race is, is a factor. factor. And but, it's been documented as a factor. The DOJ looked at Ferguson and confirmed, right, they documented they, their, their uh, report on Ferguson mm -hmm. gotcha. documented a pattern of policing that was, first of all, generated, intended to generate revenue for the local government, that's part of the problem, and had a disproportionate impact on the African-American citizens of Ferguson. So there, of course, it is, it is the problem. The big problem is that there's only something like 50 lawyers in the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. They cannot police 18,000 police departments in this country. Yeah. The problem is not that they're looking at Baltimore, the problem is they don't have the resources to look at the other 17,900 and whatever that is. Well, there's, a, there's a culture around policing that goes back generations and generations from the very beginning of policing, which goes back to Reconstruction and all of these different things. But I remember in, in Los Angeles in 92 with the, with, the, with the riots, I was right there as a 17-year-old mm -hmm. senior in high school on that Wednesday, April 29th at 3.45 when that, that those uh, uh, police officers who were indicted came back. You're talking about Rodney King. The Rodney King incident. <laughs> and, and I remember the, the policing situation there. And, you know, what's interesting, we had a black mayor. 
Tom Bradley was a 20-year mm -hmm. veteran That's mayor right. in that time, but we also had a chief of police named Daryl Gates. Oh, yes. Who was one of the most corrupt police off police uh, chiefs, I would argue, in the country. Mm -hmm. came, came after William Parker, another corrupt one. And the SWAT idea, right, the SWAT, the special weapons uh, and the militarization of the policing force came out of the Los Angeles Police Department. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this whole culture around policing right. that we have to look at right. that, that goes along with housing, that goes along with education, that goes along with, with health care right. that's systemic and all this thing so the whole system is broken and right. we need to reboot it and that's what Loretta Lynch said she said we cannot legislate our way out of this right this is a this is I mean so DOJ cannot fix 18,000 right. police departments because it is not a it's not an individual problem of individual police officers some many of whom are great it is a systemic problem and, and we have to address it so we have a, a soundbite from Linda Dorsina for a state senator in Massachusetts talking about the idea of Baltimore and its ramifications and implications in Boston. Let's listen. We are making steps. Again, can we do more? Of course we can, right? We can always do more. And it's not just an elected office, and I want to stress this, but it's also in the private sector, right, in terms of the companies and, and the boardrooms. You know, are there people of color in the boardrooms? And I'm not saying let's just pick out Joe Schmo, who doesn't—not in finance, but we have a lot of talent right here in Boston, a lot of folks who went to universities and colleges and PhDs and MBAs, and they're working in the financial sector. And we want— us to be reflected everywhere. And I think the work is still, we need to still plow ahead. I would say in government, we're doing much better because we can hold folks accountable, right? Because it's about elected office. We rely on the voters. They put us here so we can really mobilize and get people behind an issue and really push elected officials to say this is a priority and we want to see the reflection of our great city when it comes when it comes to talking about development and jobs and people, the small businesses, you know, that are get it going to get the work. We want it to reflect, you know, our city. My hope is that you know, as we talk about Baltimore and we talk about the, um, all the other incidents that's happened around the country, my hope is that we use that as a, a, a starting point of having the real conversation and dialogue as to this can happen here in the city and, you know, what is it we need to do to make sure it doesn't. And there you have State Senator Linda Dorsina Forey of Massachusetts talking about ways to prevent the circumstances in Baltimore from happening in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and, and we're fortunate to have <laughs> Dr. Peniel Joseph join us. Thank you for being a part of the discussion. Since you're in the hot seat, you just jump right in there. You want to jump in? No, absolutely. Um, in terms of preventing another sort of Baltimore, uh, what Boston has to do, and I've heard what other people were saying, it's got to be anti-poverty. It's got to be um, jobs. It's got to be transforming these communities that are potential hotspots. I mean, Baltimore has a long history, but so does Boston. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, Boston's long history of um, racial segregation, but also uh, anti-black racism goes way beyond Boston and busing. Uh, one of the main activists in the 1960s was Ruth Batson. But Ruth was active in the, in the early 1960s, uh, the same day that John F. Kennedy um, spoke out against racism, June 11, 1963. Uh, Ruth Batson was here in Boston that same day, really um, castigating the school districts for racial segregation, that it would take another decade for Judge Garrity's decision to say, look, we've got racially segregated schools and it's it's got to stop, right? Mm -hmm. And so racially segregated schools were about um, life chances. It was about if you were born black in Boston, you had a worse 
uh, uh, life experience than if you were born white. This is still occurring still, in 2015, yeah. so yeah. it becomes what can we do? And I think the mayor has been very uh, receptive to, to, to people talking to him, but it becomes, you know, um, John Barrows. Office of, um, uh, I, I don't know the exact term, but it's basically Office of Diversity to look Absolutely. at this. So, so there'll be people who are watching, Peniel, just to be devil's advocate, who'll say, are you comparing the experiences uh, back then to now as far as with African Americans? You can't see that it has improved at all. Well, in terms of poor African Americans, it's very similar. In terms of the black middle class, there is growth, but it depends on how we define the black middle, right, middle right. class. Right, especially in Boston. Um, so yeah, we have more elected officials, we have more African-American wealth, but if you're born poor and you're living below the poverty line or you're part of the working poor, it's very similar generationally. I, I think what, what you've done is correctly put, this in, uh, put policing in the context of the larger issues and so on and so forth. But I think there's also a specific question about policing. Mm -hmm. The whole notion of why even stop Freddie Gray in the first place. I, I'm not sure if the, question, if the issues, there are many Freddie Grays around the country. Mm -hmm. Why stop individuals in the first place? What is, what, and, and a a lot of this is in the context of the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. And I have to say the so-called war on drugs, because it's a war, you know, like that's largely been unequal in many ways yeah. in right. terms of who are the casualties of this war. And, many, and those casualties have largely been uh, African-American, Latino mm -hmm. uh, people, even though we know the studies, disproportionate numbers of uh, about the same percentage of white Americans consume, uh, take in drugs as black and Latino Americans. And so I think the first thing that has to happen in, in, uh, in concomitant with the, very, with the very excellent points that you're making, is also to look at, to basically take apart this war on drugs, to look at what's really happening. What is this thing all about? Is it working? Is it effective? And who are the victims of this? And, and, right. and, and also reprioritize re police yeah. uh, uh, priorities, if you will. Well, there's two yeah. things here. I mean, the first thing is that you can't logically analyze illogical behavior. Right. right. So the moment that you backseat quarterback try to figure out why this happened, you've you've gone down the rabbit hole, right? Because there is no logical explanation to illogical behavior. The second thing is there is a war on drugs, right? It's on opiates and it's in the suburbs, right? right. So here's the mm -hmm. other challenge, the, the mm -hmm. disparity right. that we're talking about, the economical disparity, political disparity, you know, this disenfranchisement of people of color, mm -hmm. even in this city, right? Boston, Massachusetts. You, so so all the things we're asking for, they exist. They just don't exist across the board. Right. right. Right, and to make to make your point clear, that war on drugs in the suburbs on opiates does not result in people being stopped exactly. randomly and harassed. So it's both the combination of the war on drugs and the racial dynamics of it, and the broken and the broken windows policy of policing, mm -hmm. which pervades a lot of police departments. There's also a separate issue of, and we we like to wrap it up as police training, but mm -hmm. I think we also need to look at in terms of how police are chosen, how mm -hmm. they're how you know how people join the force, and the whole politics of the police department, mm -hmm. which is something that we are as a society do not question how, how people get promoted mm -hmm. right you know these these are questions that the police department seems to be um, you know uh, somehow isolated from a thorough police departments from a real examination of the pol of the structures and the culture of the, our police departments why are they why are they exempt from an examination of their culture that's a perfect segue into Andrea Cabral uh, former secretary of public safety in Massachusetts she spoke to basic black let's let's hear what she had to say. Black political leadership is always important at all different levels, but I don't think 
we should fool ourselves into believing that government itself is not an institution. And every institution, wherever you mark it in history, is the sum total of everything that's come before it. And so you certainly, you would have to have successive um, instances of black political leadership over a lengthy period of time, I think, to combat some of that. But you also, whether you have uh, black people in charge in all of these areas or not, there still has to be sort of attitudinal change. And not, not all of it is race-based. I mean, groups naturally tend to help other members of their own groups. So if you're talking about the Irish or the Italians or any other group of people, Asians, you tend to help people in your own group. And if your group has held power for a long period of time, the institution is going to reflect where the power is and that it lies in largely in people who are members of the groups that have been around the longest. That's why the need for the farm team, the need to kind of consistently have um, a system to build an infrastructure of black political leadership where the candidates that follow one another can build on what has been created. Again, Andrea Cabral speaking about the impact of leadership of people of color in communities all across the United States. And she was speaking to Peniel specifically, uh, the fact that people have raised the question, well, you know, the leadership in Baltimore is black. Yeah. 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 So what's your problem? <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, I think leadership in Baltimore is black. But one of the things we have to understand is that our leadership, and we can see it even with the president of the United States, it reflects a larger system. It reflects the attitudes. Uh, the president is all for the Trans-Pacific Partnership right now, the mm -hmm. TPP. Labor is really against it, and it's going to hurt working-class people, but it's going to help uh, very, very wealthy people. Mm -hmm. So um, when we think about Baltimore, Baltimore is an example of, yes, there's African-American leadership, but it reflects a certain class. The mayor is from a certain class of people in mm -hmm. Baltimore. Um, the, 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 the police chief is from a certain social economic class or at least educational level and attainment. So what we see is that black folks in higher places can reproduce um, political domination over poor black people. And that's something that on one level we could say it's some people would say it's progress. I don't say it's progress. <laughs> yeah. But some people would say, progress. you know, look, you have a black president. On one level, he's, he's subverting um, 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 political domination. On other levels, he, he, he's part of a system where it's really almost impossible for him to subvert that. I mean, I, and I, I in Baltimore, let, you get the same thing. I, and I, I want to let people get in on this, but, you know, I, I listen <laughs> to you, and, and, and I love hearing the way you look at the world, because I'm sure there are people who will say here, sit here and say, okay, in one sense, you say you want black leadership yes. in, the, in a city, so you get Baltimore. And then you say, well, listen, they don't come from, they come from wealth. No, so that's kind of why, I'm so you, no. you have to have somebody who comes from, no, just very quickly, no. the perspective has to be one to help poor people and working class people and not just be reflective of the status quo. It also, has, you, to, it also has to reflect what you consider to be effective. Yeah. Part of the problem with uh, a lot of leadership uh, is that in many ways they're captive. They assume, well, how do I get from point A to B? How do I turn my city around? I look at Detroit, for example. Detroit, it was assumed that what you could do is you invest
in the downtown, you create something called a Renaissance Center, mm -hmm. and that should pull the rest of the city together. Well, of course it didn't. <laughs> so what you did was you created a Renaissance Center, but the only Renaissance was downtown. <laughs> and the same thing is true with the Boston, uh, Baltimore Inner Harbor. Mm -hmm. You create a, an area that basically uh, becomes the, uh, a tale of two cities. Baltimore on this side and Baltimore on this side. And right. the wire. And the wire, right. exactly. Yeah, right. and, and, th that, uh, and, and what's what's happened is people are captive to, if you will, sort of old economic uh, uh, theories, old economic paradigms, and they're not sure what what works. Right. Well, I mean, there's, 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 there's two, two things here. Yeah. One, it's hard to be effective in those leadership positions when you're a full-time fundraiser. Or, or precisely. I mean, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and that's... And then the second well, thing—it's the game of politics. It's the, game of politics. Politics. It's, it's the reality of politics. So it's, it's hard to be focused on poor people, working class people, when you got to spend your time with middle class and upper class people right. with your hand in their pocket. And it is harder for politicians of color to, to fundraise too. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it is a game of politics, but they have an added burden because mm -hmm. of their resources. But but the other thing too is that we have not just been, at least I haven't, I know I've been on this show for I don't know how many years, <laughs> saying it's not just an individual problem and it's not just about right. leadership. It's a systemic problem. Yeah, I've said yeah. that word until my head is going to fall <laughs> off, right? So I mean, we, no one has, has said that. People can perpetuate systemic problems regardless of the color, right? Three of the six police officers who beat up Freddie Gray, okay. I believe, were black. Yes, One yes, of them was are. a woman, yes. a black woman, yes. right? But, you know, are they black or are they blue? Because they're in the department and they perpetuate it. You know, I have a, I have a niece who's training to be a police officer right this very moment, and she is very torn. I, you know, we have very violent, you know, vehement discussions about it. So it, 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 is, it is not just about black leadership, and I think anyone who suggests that, I don't think anyone well, has, has if it was just about that. black leadership, I mean, we have a we have a very good uh, uh, black police officer in this city, mm -hmm. Willie Goss, you know, yes. Gross, Chief, uh, Willie uh, Gross. Chief Willie Gross, who second has, highest in command in the in the Boston Police Department. That's right. Who is uh, I would I would uh, say is doing a very good job of trying to basically get from point A to point B in terms of attitudes among uh, black youth, for example, toward the police department, in towards in terms of actual you know like as. Uh, um, um, actually reaching out in terms of community engagement, so on and so forth. I interviewed but, him for community uh, for Black History Month, the story I did on him, and just to interject, he, the, community policing is considered basically the number one priority right. yes. in the Boston Police Department. That's it's a right. tenant, literally. Um, so I, just to even out the conversation a little bit, but okay. But, he's, but, but he represents, you know, he's one person, and but I also give Evans credit for, uh, yes. and, the, and, the, and the department credit for this whole notion of trying. But it also has to be put in the context of what's happening nationally and the whole culture of policing. The culture of policing still has to transcend, you know, like attitude, it has to create, there has right. to be an attitudinal change. Right. And a lot of it, that involves a, a, a it contravening stereotypes and that's a hard thing to do to contravene a stereotype means that the, everything you've assumed all your life about certain behavior uh, in of certain people it means all of a sudden oh well, maybe that's not such script though because mm -hmm. the the people in the communities have an anxiety mm -hmm. yes when it comes to policing mm -hmm. police officers have an anxiety when they go on their beat that's yeah. right mm -hmm. right but part, I mean, I mean and, and so we have to balance that out that there is this fear on both sides and I'm not trying to privilege either one of the fears mm -hmm. so part of it well, is a systemic challenge that these relationships are not effective they're not efficient and we have to reform and revision these relationships hold I love this conversation yes, yeah. but I just have to let folks at home know we have about three minutes left up to the live broadcast about three and a half and then we're going to continue online with basic black and we're going to talk about specifically when is it okay to 
sort of make fun or at least look at satire <laughs> regarding race relations right now and Key and Peel, this very popular and now controversial uh, <laughs> duo um, has put out a, a, a skit that Kim likes I called love it. Negro <laughs> Town. I don't know if we have a clip just to give you a little taste. You won't get followed when you try to shop. You can't wear your hoodie and not get shot. No white folks to cross the street in fear. No trigger happy cops or scared cashiers. That loan application can't get turned down. You always approved in Negro Town. Yeah. Boy, do we want to talk about that, Kim, with your thumbs up. You know the song, don't you? I know it by heart already. So, so we're going to continue. We're going to talk about that online. But I, I want to let you finish the point about what we're talking about earlier as far as systemic problems. I'll let Peniel jump in. Just, just very quickly, we have too many interactions between community members and police. And I think what this generation doesn't understand is that 35 years ago, it wasn't like this, right. right? So we have, you know, right. Phil was saying, what can we do? Why was Freddie Gray stopped? Police arrest too many African Americans and right. just too many people, right? Yes. And the war on drugs is the biggest driver, but our system of mass incarceration means that we have way too many interactions between regular citizens right. and the police. Right. Right. And, and so Which, it's, it's beyond just stereotypes. We'd have to say nationally, we want less arrests. And that's why the policy, the main policy driver we can do is the burn DOJ grant because that's the largest criminal mm -hmm. justice grant that gives billions to local state and local municipalities and it incentivizes them to do task force and to arrest people that's why Tulia Texas happened that's right. it mm -hmm. happened because right. people want right. the money right. the, the money right. well that's right. right and that's what i meant about changing the culture mm -hmm. of policing he's yeah. exactly right because of course police officers have some anxiety but part of the anxiety is perpetuated by this increasing interaction yes. right and with this idea of the warrior mentality yes. which has become perpetuated i mean it used to be protect and serve now it's you know you know arrest and harass, right? Get home at the end Get of the, home the, at the, end of the day, yeah. right. Uh, and part of what I'm, when I, when I refer to the stereotype, the reason I say that's an uber issue, that's a huge issue, is because it basically drives statistics. And the statistics is what frames of the, the what frames a lot of police policy. If it's assumed that, uh, it's sort of a chicken egg policy. If you're arresting more black people, and you, you look at the statistics, the statistics say, well, more black people commit crimes. When in fact, you, you, what you're actually engaging in, in is, a, uh, is a greater pattern of a arrest quite often. You look at highway arrest in New Jersey, uh, a, a, a Maryland study, University of Maryland study, where they showed that just massive amounts of rest ta are taking place between New York and Newark. But there'll be folks and, who are watching this program right now, and your mm -hmm. stats are true, but we'll say, okay, what do you want? Yeah. You want to be, you want to have safe streets. Right. And, and, not, and, but, and, not, and not every police officer, they would say the majority of police officers come to the table and they want to do a good job and they want to keep the public safe. Now, training course. is one thing, and when you're in trouble, whatever your color is, you call 911. Mm -hmm. So what well, do you want? Well, some communities actually are not calling 911 right, right. because well, they feel that it's going to be very, very hostile for them. I think the biggest thing we have to do is stop criminalizing black To continue the conversation, see past episodes, or discover new stories, please visit our website at basicblack.org. Um, um, then, then who died in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan mm -hmm. on the U.S. side in terms mm -hmm. of soldiers. So, I mean, I think a big part of this is that 
the crime has gone down for certain communities, right? right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things we have to remember is that one of the biggest drivers uh, of, of passing anti-crime legislation was um, Midwestern politicians in Midwestern states, where crime is historically very, very, very low, mm -hmm. yet right. they've been one of the biggest um, beneficiaries of mass incarceration because of the prison Private prison. And, right. and, and, and okay. private prisons and at times mm -hmm. federal prisons. So we, we've become a, a game changer economically for the country. Incentivizing it. Yeah, Michelle Alexander mm -hmm. says if we transformed our criminal justice system now back to what it was in 1980, we'd lose a million jobs. Easy. A million people yeah. would lose mm -hmm. their jobs yeah. mm -hmm. in terms of prison, parole, mm -hmm. and probation. So this is stuff.